Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 9 and verse 18 as we continue our study of Luke. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27 uh, is our passage this morning. That passage can be found on page 867 if you are using a church Bible, page 867. Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we ask um, that you would use your word in a powerful way this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have seen five miracles over the last five passages. Uh, Jesus stills a violent storm that had watermen fearing for their own lives. He stills it with a simple rebuke. And the raging sea becomes a lake. Jesus delivers a, a naked, bleeding, demon-possessed man who can break chains with his bare hands, who everyone had already written off and relegated to the cemetery. Jesus frees him and puts him in his right mind and clothed and at the feet of Jesus. Jesus heals a woman who'd been suffering from the same illness for 12 years and saw a number of physicians and spent all of her money without getting an ounce better. And she is healed by simply touching the outer garment of Jesus as he walks by her because she has faith in him. The same year that that woman began to hemorrhage 12 years prior, the birthday of her illness, so to speak, had also been the birth year of a girl who ends up dying at age 12 and having her funeral the same day this woman is healed the only daughter of a devastated father, and Jesus raises her from death to life by simply commanding her to get up. And it's most recently that 5,000 men with a number of women and children within a great crowd had been fed by Jesus through his disciples with a mere five loaves and a couple of fish. The thousands all ate and were totally satisfied with what should only feed a handful of people. And there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers, one basket per disciple. And so this is Jesus. He's supreme over the natural realm, over the supernatural, mightier than the worst kinds of illnesses, authoritative over even death. And he can make and create matter and food by multiplying it with his hands. If you have a friend like this, open up a restaurant. The margins will be great. If you have a friend like this, open up a hospital. Think of how many lives can be changed. If you have a friend like this, you can make any day at the beach the best kind of day. Swell when you want, dive when you want, water the crops when you want. But these miracles serve to prove that Jesus is the Lord of all. This is his identity as the Son of God and God himself, who alone can do what Jesus has been doing before the eyes of the people and especially before the eyes of his followers. And our text this morning is about this identity established and about what Jesus has come to accomplish and therefore how we ought to live in response, who Jesus is, what he has come to do, and how we therefore live in light of who he is and what he has come to do. We read in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. 
And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Jesus is the Christ of God and he must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise. Both are true at the same time. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised son of David, son of Abraham, fulfiller of all promises and covenants, and he is going to the cross to die a miserable death. Both are true at the same time. And for us on this side of the cross, it makes total sense. But for these men on the other side of the cross, it does not. For if someone is this powerful, who can heal lepers, paralytics, hemorrhaging women, and can utterly humiliate the minions of Satan, and can calm storms and walk on water and create food and raise the dead, that person should not suffer and die, but instead flourish and become famous and start businesses and achieve and gain everything that the world has to offer and bring to the people a different kind of hope. Israel at this time is a conquered nation by a world superpower in Rome, and there are Roman troops everywhere, an ever-present reminder that we are utterly dominated by them. And if there's any a time we need a deliverer, a king, a conqueror, a superhero, the Messiah, the Christ, the time is now. And the evidence is all over the trail that Jesus leaves behind them that he is the one that so many of us have been waiting for. But the people, while they have these high thoughts of Jesus, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, perhaps one of the prophets returned, while the crowds of people may have high thoughts of Jesus, they're not high enough. And it's really just these 12 men with Peter as their mouthpiece, confessing Jesus' true identity as the Christ of God. And this is a pivotal passage for the small group of followers because they have come to a point where they know his identity. They know who he is, and yet Jesus tells them, shh, don't say a word. Why? Because the disciples only know the half of it. Jesus is the Christ of God, but Jesus must suffer and die and rise. This is what he has come to do, not to overthrow Rome, not to liberate Israel, not to sit on a throne, not to gain the whole world at this point, but to suffer and be rejected and be killed. And this is not what the disciples want to hear. They left everything to follow Jesus. They put all their eggs into his basket. They went all in with him. They didn't do that because they thought a cross was coming for Jesus. They did that because they thought a kingdom was coming for Jesus. And they wanted a rule and a reign that eradicated their present suffering. They wanted to rule and reign next to him. And yet the Christ of God is telling them, I must suffer, be rejected, and be killed. That word must is a little word, three Greek letters, which means it is necessary. It means that there's no other way. And while so many people felt their greatest need to be this illness healed or this food filled or this child brought back to life for me to enjoy, this nation overthrown and the right people put into power again, Jesus has so demonstrated that he can easily solve these kinds of problems by just simply speaking them away. These are not ultimately humanity's greatest needs. Ill people get ill again. Demons leave to return to influence others. Those who rise from the grave will die once more. Nations rise, nations go. None of these short-term fixes really changes humanity's ultimate outlook. 
We so often misdiagnose uh, what, what it is we think we need most because we're so influenced by what is merely pressing us in that moment. But what we need more than any kind of healing or any kind of food or any kind of liberation, what we need more than any of that is our iniquity and our sinfulness and our hearts bent away from God himself. What we need is forgiveness and new life and a new heart that is filled with love for him. What we need most is God himself. What we need most is to get right with the Lord whom we have turned away from in the pursuit of all of these lesser things. And Jesus cannot speak and have sin eradicated. The Messiah can't heal our wicked hearts by a touch like he can with an illness or cleanse us with a word like you can with leprosy. No, the only way that the Christ of God can bring forgiveness and healing and the new life that we are in desperate need of is by dying upon the cross. He needs to bear our sins upon himself and pay the penalty and absorb the righteous wrath which we have earned by our selfish and God-denying living. God cannot just sweep that, what we have done under the rug. He's too holy and just for that. Instead, the Christ of God must suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise. Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus must suffer on our behalf if we are to have any kind of hope. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes the very things God hates for our sake. Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The cross is necessary. It must occur and the resurrection with it. Romans 4, 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, that's the cross, and raised for our justification, that's the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The very cornerstone of Christianity is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and God himself. He suffers, is rejected, and dies upon the cross and rises again from the grave to atone for the sins of those who will believe, to wash them away, as it were, with his very own blood, to heal by his own stripes and to bring us peace with his suffering, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. This must take place. It is necessary for there is no other way for forgiveness to occur and for us to be made right with God and to be given new life with Jesus right at the center of it. This is our most ultimate need. Jesus is the Christ. That's who he is. And Jesus must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise. This is what he has come to do. This is the gospel message, the good news, that God loves a sinful people enough to save them. That as exalted and powerful and supreme Jesus has proven himself to be, he makes himself the lowest slave to serve the ones who least deserve it. And he does this because of his great love for us. You know, it's with this unflinching clarity that Jesus speaks of these things as a matter of fact. 
And Jesus has known that his suffering and death would occur from all of eternity past. And I think that amplifies our understanding of his love for us. For there was never a time where Jesus did not carry this cross at the forefront of his mind. Our, our two older boys are about the age for braces, and they seemed a little excited to get them to fix their teeth. But Dane has this unfortunate combination of extra large teeth with an extra small mouth. And so the orthodontist told us, there's no way these teeth are supposed to fit in here, so we're going to need to pull four of them out. Got to create some space. And the moment Dane heard that is when his pain really began, <laughs> even though we didn't pull those teeth out for several weeks. Is it going to hurt? How bad is it going to hurt? How long does it take? It won't be bad, Dane. You get shots, and the shots make it so you don't feel a thing. Shots? Do those hurt? <laughs> How many? But there's a, a pain in the anticipation of pain. The longer the day takes to come, it's amplified more and more to the point we're asking, well, don't you want straight teeth? Don't you think it's worth it? Over the weeks leading up to the day, Dane's own confession, you know what? I don't need straight teeth. <laughs> it's not worth it. The anticipation of pain is a pain in and of itself, which tests if you really want to endure it for the end result. Yeah, Jesus, he carries his cross for far longer than Calvary's road. When Adam and Eve fell into that garden, the promise is given that one of Eve's children would crush, bruise the head of the serpent. Well, the cross of Christ comes a little bit closer to him. When Cain kills Abel, the next generation of humanity, showing that this sin has spread, the same cross inches its way nearer when the flood occurs because of the wickedness of mankind as a whole is so great. But at least there's one person in all the world, Noah, who is righteous, relatively speaking, and there's this glimmer of hope, but then Noah falls right afterwards into sin. That cross comes nearer yet. Abraham imperfect, David murderer, liar, the best of Israel, all coming short. That cross comes nearer and nearer still. Jesus leaves his heavenly glory to be put into a manger. Why? So that he might live the righteous life that not a single one of us have been able to live. So that he might die the death that we each and all deserve as a perfect substitute for the unholy. Our Savior, in one sense, suffered a thousand deaths before that cross in the anticipation of exactly that cross. And this is the ultimate test of love for Jesus. Five miracles back to back to back. I am exactly who you think I am. I can conquer the world if need be. But should I still do what is necessary for them that I do? Is it even worth it? And just like in the wilderness where the devil whispers his message, you can have all the glory without the suffering, Jesus. You can have a kingdom without the pain. You can have a crown without the cross. Make stones into bread. Aren't you hungry? Don't you have needs? Lust after the luxuries of the world. Don't you deserve it? After all, you are the son of God. The temptation is always there as Jesus has been carrying this heavy cross from eternity past to just lay it down to just put it aside. But the ultimate test of love is measured here in Jesus' ultimate self-denial. I must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. That must is not merely duty, brothers and sisters. 
that must is a self-denying love for the ones who least deserve it, which makes that love and his grace all the more amazing. Jesus' determination in this moment is love without the distraction of self-protection, of self-comfort, of self-exaltation. There's not so much as a quiver for Jesus' face is set upon the cross of our salvation, even though that path requires the ultimate self-denial. And then we begin to understand a little bit more the height and depth and breadth and length of God's love for us. There is no greater love than this. And so Jesus is the Christ of God, and Jesus must suffer and die and be raised. Both are true at the same time. This is his identity, and this is what he has come to do, which has very strong implications for the way that his followers ought to live as well. Look with me at verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is the Christ. That's who he is. He's the epitome of self-denying love. That's what he does. He has a cross, and so do his followers. Jesus is very upfront in this very pivotal passage about our own self-denial. And while the disciples' confession has already separated them from the rest of the crowd and the rest of the nation, there's a gulf of difference between what they're saying about Jesus and what the people are willing to admit. There is also supposed to be a gulf of difference between how Jesus' followers live and those who don't follow him. Christianity is not just a confession alone. It is a cross-bearing life. And the primary difference in these verses between a genuine believer and one who does not know Jesus is evidenced in a powerful self-denial in the recognition of Jesus' own powerful self-denial. Do you want to follow Jesus? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. This is a clarion call for us to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness, of self-absorption. The air that we're currently breathing is so wrapped up in the highest virtue defined as being true to yourself, to look out for your own needs, being described as self-health, to discover who you are through self-realization, self-blah-blah-blah. There's a magazine at the grocery store literally titled Self Magazine, that the authority of our lives must be internal rather than external, that every person should be whoever and whatever they want to be, and no one outside of them has the right to tell them otherwise. And if there's anything you are to deny, it's not what's within, but it is what is without. Don't let anything outside of you define the true you. This is simply called self-worship, the idolatry of self-centeredness, self-absorption, and yet strangely, in these days, comes with a Christian tag. Christian self-centeredness is what you frequently see all over social media and whatnot, where the focus is all upon you and where God is going to lead you on your next adventure. This is called Christianity without a cross. 
It's the kind of Christianity that says, go ahead and get a divorce if it doesn't fulfill you anymore. God wants you to be happy. God wants to be fulfilled. Apart from these friends, if they're toxic to you, build more barn houses, store up more treasures on earth, for Jesus wants you to be happy and rich and be healthy to the point where you never, ever have to rely upon him because you have so much on your own apart from him. So much so that if he were to return to tomorrow for you, you might kind of be a little disappointed that you didn't get to enjoy the world more prior to his return. It's the kind of faith that wants to be so well-received and applauded in the world that it never makes strong statements about sin or about the need for repentance or about God's design, gender-specific, in the world and in the church and in marriage. It is the kind of belief that will never stand up for what is righteous, even if millions of babies are dying. We better not make a big deal out of something like that because we don't want the frowns of the crowd. Because this kind of faith is more concerned with how well I am received by the world's current rather than standing against it. It is the kind of gospel where the main problem is not our sinful hearts and our proneness to wander. And therefore, our main need is not repentance and being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ for our own joy. But how can I conform God to my own image and make him a part of my plan and get him to do my will, which places the importance on the now elevated over the importance of eternity and the glory of this world over supremely over the glory of the coming one. It preaches the good life apart from any kind of cross and is utterly antagonistic to what Jesus is proclaiming here to all and to anyone who would come after him. What Jesus is saying here is heresy to the air that we're currently breathing in this world and the air of so much of contemporary Christianity. When Jesus says, take up your cross, there was no cross jewelry at the time. For the cross signified what a criminal bore on his bleeding back while being mocked by bystanders, jeering at how much this person deserved exactly what he is getting. And this person would endure the shame of carrying upon his shoulders the very instrument that would carry him to his own death and crucifixion. Cross, just the word, was considered cussing in polite language in first century Rome. It was that horrendous, that unspeakable. And yet Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross every day and follow me. This is not self-denial for its own sake, like what you find in Buddhism and whatnot. This is self-denial in following Jesus. That what becomes supreme is not emptying ourselves of ourselves as an end, but emptying ourselves of ourselves so that we might become filled with the fullness of Christ and walk in his very same footsteps in this momentary and passing life, living our all for his glory rather than our own, which takes a lot of self-denial but which ironically can so often bring to us the most joy in Jesus. And this is exactly the principle he gives to his followers in verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. People often think and believe that the more self-centered you are, the more life you really gain. And the more sacrificial you are, the more life you really lose out on. The more self-indulgent, the more fulfilled the more self-denying, the more empty. But those who refuse to deny themselves and take up a cross and follow Jesus 
they never do find life. And those who seek their own satisfaction first and foremost never ultimately find that satisfaction they hoarded all to seek. Self-interest, self-preservation, self-self-self has this rotting effect. And Jesus promises here that will surely come up empty, and if not completely in this life, then surely in the next one. We know this deep down. If you've ever spent time with someone who is even a little bit narcissistic in more abnormal ways than the rest of us, then you will know a little bit about how it can shrivel the soul and spoil the heart and make it worse for them and those around them. And on the other side, the ones who are so upward and outward oriented, you just want to spend more and more time with them because even their mere presence seems to generate more life in you as well. And there's some within the church who may not have much at all, but the joy is so prevalent when they live for Christ. And they are the examples which give flesh to Jesus' words that those who have denied themselves have already gained the satisfaction, which is a preview, just a preview for the ultimate satisfaction which is yet to come. And this is what Jesus has in mind. For the stakes of eternity are also clear in this demand from Jesus. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Nothing in the world is worth you. Not even the entire world is worth your eternal soul, church family. If we fail to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, Jesus says right here, you're going to lose your soul in the process. It's right here in the text, straight from the lips of Jesus. And we so often don't know how to enumerate this life in comparison with the next one. If we fail to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, we are going to lose our souls in the process. This is not extra credit. Jesus is very clear in our passage that recognizing his identity is not enough. Who do you say I am? The Christ of God. That's not enough. Jesus didn't even permit his disciples to tell anyone about this truth until they realized the fullness of the message that Jesus carries across and his disciples do as well. That the way we are defined in these verses is by what it is we carry and who it is we deny and who it is we follow instead. And these words confront every single one of us this morning. Are you denying yourself and taking up your cross daily? and following Jesus the Christ? Or are we denying this Christ and laying down his cross and following our own little selves daily? This is a everyday decision, not a once in a lifetime thing. We will often never face a scenario where a gun is pulled up to our heads with a proposition, deny Jesus or die. That doesn't happen to any of us. I think that's far too obvious. It's usually not the aim of our adversary to be so upfront. A.B. Bruce says this, for the whole aim of satanic policy is to get self-interest recognized as the chief aim of man. That's the whole aim of the devil. Make your own interest your chief aim. Once self-interest is more and more your chief aim, more and more the devil's work is accomplished in you. And it's often so very subtle. Why go for the jugular when so many die a death of a thousand little cuts and have the same end result? We don't usually make big jumps of compromise. We just take these little steps away from God and towards self-idolatry. 
They're hardly even noticeable. Just a little guilty pleasure. Nothing too much. I'm Christian after all. I look at pornography. I'll just watch these shows on HBO. Not gluttony, but picture and post worthy. But I'm going to allocate this amount of money even though I can't afford it. Upgrading my lifestyle, fantasizing and studying all the ways to make my life more comfortable and opulent, even if it downgrades my giving to the church and the mission at hand. More me time, less serving time, less with the family and church community. Who do we look up to in this life? It's not often the self-deniers that are glorified in this world, but the great achievers, the ones who stand out head and shoulders above the crowd. What do we find ourselves daydreaming about? Improving our position or the return of our Savior. And our children are so often an extension of our own selves and our own glory, so we sacrifice for them. But we do do so in such a way that we want them to be star athletes, scholars, get into the best schools to set them up for the best careers and the best opportunities, even if it cuts into other things. This is a type of cross, but not for Christ's glory really for the parents' glory and our rising placement in the rankings of the world. And then we wonder why it is that so many of our youth wander away because we have inadvertently preached that it is good to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, children. We can refuse to deny ourselves in our marriages, seek the self instead. I don't love this person because this person doesn't fulfill me or serve me. Or me, 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 me. We've changed so much that it would be better for me to move on. Angry at home when expectations are not met. Frustrated that everyone is not malleable clay for my dreams. When we refuse to deny ourselves, we won't be forgiving. Some of us have held on to grudges for years and years and years and years because we can't deny ourselves to let go of being wronged. And we kill ourselves in the process when we refuse to deny ourselves, we'll look for any dopamine hit we can find, even in a sinful lifestyle, because what's most important to me right now is that I feel good, even if it costs someone else or damages my relationship with God and his people. In our families, our communities, whenever we seek the self rather than the die self and follow Christ, we often hit this wall after brick wall after brick wall. We can go on and on for example after example, but so it is. We are not often confronted with a do or die scenario, a gun to the head, deny Christ or get shot. That's not what happens to every single one of us. It is a series of small decisions which take us to a place where we never thought we arrive at. C.S. Lewis, in his screw tape letters, he says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. As long as this creeping self-interest becomes more and more our aim, we are ignoring these very clear words of our Lord and our Savior. Self-interest is not the chief end of man. Christ's interest is, which requires us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to follow him, and actually therein find ourselves and find the life we've always been destined to have. This is to be done daily. This is the ongoing reality of those who have truly recognized who Jesus is and have understood what he has come to do, which means every single morning when we wake up, we are called to the discipline of denying ourselves and following him. 
And every night when you debrief yourself on how the day went, the rubric is such that we interpret our day by this self-denial and cross-bearing. For if our Lord and our King bears a cross and denies himself for love, so ought it to be for all of his followers. And if we are not intentional about it, then it will not happen. If you don't do this daily, you will not do this at all. Now, one unnecessary clarification, especially if you're newer here, Jesus is not saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me to be saved. He's not suggesting that if you do this hard enough, you can earn your way to heaven through your effort. That's not it. The whole point to the first part of our passage is the necessity of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection as the only way for salvation to be given to us. What Jesus is saying is that if we believe him, in him as the Christ of God, and trust in the salvation that it comes only by his work, then we will be given and granted this new life of like self-denial that finds true living that is only made possible by his grace. Because what we know here is just part. What we live and who we deny is a true indicator of if this has really sunk in. And if we are truly a recipient of his grace, we can all talk theology, but if we don't deny ourselves, it means nothing. I want to encourage you at the same time of the gradual nature of daily taking up a cross and denying ourselves. I think we do get better over time at this denial and dying to self in these increasing ways over time. Stuff that used to mean the world to us You'll find over the years, it doesn't mean all that much to you more, uh, more and more. It's not that we're called to this monk-like uh, self-denial just for self-denial's sake. There's a way of living that can still enjoy the things of the world, but not be in love with them or mastered by them. That's what we do when we follow Jesus. Listen to 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's not use or enjoy, it's love. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possession. Do you love that stuff? It's not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but Whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's entirely a good thing to enjoy a good cheeseburger and a Diet Coke and take a vacation and fix your kitchen. You don't love it. Self-denial doesn't mean we don't get to enjoy things here, but compared to the love of doing God's will, it just can't even be in the same ballpark, brothers and sisters. And this is something we grow into over the years. That that cross feels different. It fits our shoulders more and more. And the faith and the hope fuels our belief in the same principle that there's a cross before the crown and suffering before the glory and an emphasis on the coming kingdom and not this momentary life. And so Jesus is the Christ and he denies himself and carries a cross and he calls his disciples to do the same and to follow him. Verse 26, Jesus points to the glory that is to come at the end of this self-denying and cross-bearing life. And he also points to the potential of shame. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, 
Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's a triple glory that Jesus alludes to here that's reserved for the future. The glory of the Son, the glory of the Father, and of the holy angels will be undeniably revealed. And the world which has rejected Christ will no longer be able to do so, nor will they be able to deny his faithful followers uh, who have carried a heavy cross. Jesus is going to give them a taste, a preview, a sample of exactly this kind of glory which is in the passage to come. But he does this so that these 12 and us as well, that our eyes, though we cannot see this glory now, we're to be focused upon this coming day more and more rather than the passing comforts and failing beauties of this present world. But notice the emphasis in these last words on the potential shame. Greg uh, Morris writes an article, Whoever is ashamed of me, a call to the quietly Christian. And I want to read to you what it says as we close. The blush of embarrassment, the reddening cheek, have you ever wondered the power of it? Our lives, when all is done and told, can be summarized in what we held firm to the end and what we let slip for fear or shame. The wonder may nowhere be more pronounced than in the words of Jesus, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Try to imagine it. The day has come suddenly like the thief in the night. The angels too numerous account, too wonderful to anticipate, too other to feel at ease among, now encompass the earth. Some surround Christ, blazing as forest fires. Others bellow loud praises to God and to the Lamb. Still others flash forth as lightning, blowing trumpets and summoning the world to account. And then you see him, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, draped in the glory of his Father. Charioting the crowds, he approaches the world of men. He is adorned in blinding light, dressed for war, a sword protruding from his mouth, the great spectacle, the great reckoner, the one by whom and for whom all exists, dogs his boat upon the shore. The eyelids of this world will pull back. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All activity apart from him will stop. Atheism and paganism and false religion will cease to be. He has come. In this landscape filled with angels, God and men slumped between the true saints and the brazen unrepentant will be those who knew enough to truly follow him but never did. The blushers, they knew Jesus to be who he said he was, but they did not own him. They visited him only at night but wouldn't appear with him in the daylight when the question was put to them before men, devils, those they admired or feared, they could not speak with Luther. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. They kept what they took to be their personal convictions and would not confess them. And there they stand alongside the great gathering of all who ever lived. The king looks down at them as they looked upon him with holy embarrassment and godly shame. They lived ashamed of him, and now Jesus is ashamed of them before his father and his heavenly assembly. They denied him and are now denied. Depart from me, you curse, he will say, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's an edge to these verses that should not be dulled. 
We're supposed to feel that and think of this day, brothers and sisters, not just the next few years, but to think about our Savior and who he is and what he has come to do out of his love for us and pick up that cross and deny yourself daily and let it be that we follow him with all of our unashamed hearts. Would you play, please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus' uh, words and his life, his identity, his love for us, and his clarity in showing to us the path of following him. And I pray that by your spirit, God, because we can't follow him on our own, that you would let us follow and deny ourselves and carry our cross. Let us lose our life so that we might find real life. Help us to be not so nearsighted. Help us to endure the jeers, the mocks, the stares. Help us to be utterly unashamed. And I pray, Lord, that by doing so, you would call people in the crowd as well to find Jesus to eternal life. I pray, Lord, for each of us, that by the Spirit, you would convict our hearts of the little things we need to do today, the little crosses we need to bear, the subtle ways we have not denied ourselves. The, the, the inconspicuous ways we have made our kingdom most pressing and self-idolatry our chief aim. Would you show us these things by the Holy Spirit? Show us how we're destroying ourselves therein. And help us, God, to find life which can only be found in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things for his glory and our own good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.